Welcome back to Rajcast for episode 49. I'm Nachi Gupta. And I'm Mega Rajpal, and we're back with some more High Yield Emergency Medicine Board Review. Let's jump right into some questions. Let's start out with little humans and rashes for the first question. An 11-year-old boy developed an itchy, painful erythematous rash on his hands, forearms, and face one day after hiking in nearby woods. Your exam shows linear erythematous papules over his forearms and swelling and erythema around his eyes, cheeks, and forehead. You suspect poison ivy. The patient's mom tells you he's had a reaction to poison ivy before. Which of the following is most likely to improve the course of his illness? Is it A, oral diphenhydramine every six hours? B, three-week prednisone taper? C, topical 1% hydrocortisone three times daily? Or D, topical calamine lotion twice daily? A lot of these sound like good options, so let's use the process of elimination here. The first big thing to pick up on here is that pruritus from poison IV is not histamine-mediated. This knocks out answer choice A, oral diphenhydramine. Choice C, topical 1% hydrocortisone, that's useful for local contact dermatitis, but it's not recommended for long durations on the face. Since our little guy has poison ivy that's pretty widespread and involves his face and eyelids, this treatment isn't appropriate. Choice D, calamine lotion, is useful for controlling symptoms, but does not change the course of illness. So the answer here is choice B, three-week prednisone taper. Our patient has allergic contact dermatitis from poison ivy. This is a delayed type 4 hypersensitivity reaction, and it may not present for 7 to 10 days after exposure. With repeated exposures, the reaction can develop within 12 hours though, which is what happened here. Mega, just to reiterate, how does this rash typically present? It typically presents with itching and redness, followed by papules, vesicles, and bullae in a linear arrangement. And treatment for poison ivy is generally with topical high-potency corticosteroids, but our patient has an extensive reaction that involves the face. You should get a two to three week course of tapering systemic corticosteroids. I know that seems like a long course, but the rash is fairly likely to rebound with a shorter course. Nachi, do you know at what age children begin to present with allergic contact dermatitis similar to adults? That's usually around three to eight years of age. And interestingly, it's because prior to this, they have an impaired ability to react to allergens. All right, Nachi, you're up for the next one. And just like a regular ED shift, you never know what you're going to get. We're moving from rashes to PE. Which of the following patients will benefit most from receiving tissue plasminogen activator for acute pulmonary embolism detected in the emergency department? Is it A, 55-year-old man with heart rate of 100, blood pressure of 80 over 40, respiratory rate of 24, and oxygen saturation of 92%? Is it B, 55-year-old man with heart rate of 145, blood pressure of 136 over 86, respiratory rate of 24, and oxygen saturation of 92%? C, 55-year-old woman with a history of lupus with a heart rate of 100, blood pressure 116 over 86, respiratory rate of 24, and oxygen saturation 85%, or D, 55-year-old woman with a heart rate of 110, blood pressure of 122 over 80, respiratory rate of 24, and oxygen saturation 92% with evidence of right ventricular dysfunction on echo. Well, only one of these patients is presenting with hemodynamic instability, and that's answer choice A, with a blood pressure of 80 over 40. Aggressive treatments like TPA for a PE should probably be considered in hemodynamically unstable patients. I was tempted by answer choice C too though, the woman with lupus who isn't holding a great O2 set. Why is A better than C? Well, you nailed the main teaching point here. You're going to give TPA to the hemodynamically unstable patient. Although the woman with lupus isn't holding a great O2 set, she is much more stable and other therapies should be tried first. And just as a general reminder on TPA, TPA accelerates lysis of thrombi, and it's used in many different disease processes, like MI, stroke, and acute PE. Administration can lead to hemodynamic improvement in patients with acute PE, 
but it really needs to be weighed against the risk of major bleeding. Persistent hypotension or shock due to acute pulmonary embolism is a widely accepted indication for systemic thrombolysis. Patient in choice B has tachycardia but is otherwise hemodynamically stable. And the patient in choice D has evidence of right ventricular dysfunction on echo but is otherwise also hemodynamically stable. In these scenarios, routine thrombolytics is not recommended. But make sure to assess each patient independently and decide on the risks and benefits on a case-by-case basis. As you're giving this patient a life-saving dose of TPA, a woman is brought in unresponsive. She and her friend had finished eating 60 minutes earlier when she collapsed suddenly to the floor while talking. A blood gas demonstrates severe metabolic acidosis. Which of the following foods is the most likely cause? Is it A, apricot kernels, B, fava beans, C, peanuts, or D, poppy seeds? Sudden collapse and metabolic acidosis. They're describing cyanide poisoning from choice A, apricot kernels. Good pickup. And while we don't see these often, this is critical emergency medicine to recognize and treat. Cyanide binds to cytochrome oxidase within the mitochondria. This results in an abrupt cessation of electron transport and oxidative phosphorylation. Not surprisingly, this is what leads to the severe metabolic acidosis that's a hallmark feature of cyanide poisoning. In addition to acidosis, patients can present with severe dyspnea, loss of consciousness, seizures, and cardiac dysrhythmias. Very high levels of cyanide can cause coma, cardiovascular collapse, and even death. And you knew that apricot kernels were a source of cyanide. What are some other sources that we should look out for? Other sources of cyanide to look out for include cyanide salts, smoke inhalation, fumigation for insects, sodium nitroprusside, pits of cherries and peaches, cigarette smoke, and acetonitride. And interestingly, inhaled cyanide is associated with the smell of bitter almonds. So look out for that if you have a good sense of smell. Even though the question didn't ask for it, let's talk about treatment briefly too. First-line treatment of cyanide toxicity is hydroxycobalamin. Hydroxycobalamin binds cyanide to make cyanococobalamin, which is non-toxic. If hydroxycobalamin isn't available, you can also give nitrites. Amyl nitrite, which is inhaled, or sodium nitrite, which is given intravenously. Both of these induce methemoglobinemia, and methemoglobin binds cyanide more strongly than the ferric ion of cytochrome oxidase, effectively creating a cyanide sink. There's also sodium thiosulfate, which through the enzyme rhodinase creates thiocyanate from cyanide. Thiocyanate is less toxic and excreted by the kidneys. But remember that hydroxycobalamin has truly replaced the other treatment options because of its low toxicity and efficacy. Also, inducing methemoglobinemia might not be ideal in many cyanide toxicities, especially in smoke inhalation and possible concomitant carbon monoxide poisonings. Just to really drive this home, hydroxycobalamin is a pretty safe treatment option for cyanide toxicity. So if you're uncertain about the diagnosis, just give the hydroxycobalamin and definitely don't wait for lab confirmation. In severe metabolic acidosis or elevated lactate, where cyanide exposure may have been possible, just give the hydroxycobalamin. In addition to the cyanide toxicity, remember to treat other abnormalities as appropriate. This can include treatment with oxygen, crystalloids, sodium bicarbonate, and vasopressors for hypotension as well. Let's quickly review the other answer choices. Patients taking monoamine oxidase inhibitors should avoid foods high in tyramine like wine, aged cheese, and answer choice B, fava beans. Choice C, peanuts, can cause severe allergic reactions and foreign body aspiration in kids, but it is not a source of cyanide. Choice D, poppy seeds, they contain small amounts of naturally occurring opiates. Okay, it's a busy day in your resuscitation bay. After treating the cyanide toxicity, you're called over to triage for a lightning strike victim. Which of the following is due to the intense thermal radiation seen in lightning strikes? Is it A, cataract formation, B, hypertension and tachycardia, C, mitriasis, or D, tympanic membrane rupture? 
Lightning strikes cause injuries via both acute thermal radiation and widespread electrical damage. Answer choice D, tympanic membrane rupture, is due to rapid pressure changes from surrounding thermal radiation. That's right. Also remember that lightning can cause burns that appear benign, leaving the external tissue untouched but can destroy the deeper fat and muscle. Delays in treatment can lead to rhapto, multi-organ failure, and death. In addition to the thermal radiation, the electrical current through the body can lead to cardiac dysrhythmias and ocular, neurovascular, and cutaneous injuries. Ocular injuries include bilateral cataract formation, retinal detachment, and uveitis. Neurovascular injuries include transient vasoconstriction and transient to permanent autonomic dysfunction, causing medriasis, anisocoria, and seizures. Cutaneous injuries can include punctate linear burns as well as the pathognomonic Lichtenberg figures. Let's go over the other answer choices. Choice A, bilateral cataract formation. This is the most common ocular damage seen post-lightning strike, but it's caused by electrical damage, not thermal damage, as you just said. Choice B, hypertension and tachycardia. These are caused by sympathetic nervous system activation. And choice C, medriasis, is due to autonomic dysfunction. Only tympanic membrane rupture on that list is due to thermal radiation. And how long should you monitor a pregnant patient who is stable and asymptomatic after a lightning strike? Pregnant women should be monitored for at least four hours post-lightning strike for continuous fetal monitoring. I hope none of our listeners are eating fried chicken right now. If so, you might want to stop for this next one. A 32-year-old woman presents to the ED with a four-day history of bloody diarrhea and abdominal cramping that started two days after eating at her favorite fried chicken restaurant. Her boyfriend ate the same food and has similar symptoms. The patient's vital signs are all within normal limits. Physical exam is significant for moist mucous membranes, brisk capillary refill, and mild, diffuse tenderness to palpation of the abdomen. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient's illness? Is it A, admit for IV azithromycin and rehydration? B, admit for IV rehydration and observation for resolution of diarrhea? C, discharge home with ciprofloxacin? Or D, discharge home with metronidazole? Our patient and her boyfriend likely had some undercooked poultry and are infected with Campylobacter jejuni. Treatment is with answer choice C, discharge home with ciprofloxacin. Right, and this person with moist mucous membranes and brisk capillary refill certainly won't require admission and IV rehydration. The incubation period for Campylobacter jejuni is two to six days. Patients typically present with bloody diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, and fever, and the illness usually lasts for two to 10 days. Treatment of severe disease is with ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, or azithromycin. Remember that late complications of Campylobacter include reactive arthritis and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And as for answer choice D, metronidazole, that's the treatment of choice for Giardia or Entamoeba. It does not cover Campylobacter and would not be appropriate here. All right, Nachi, you're up for the last question of this episode. A 54-year-old man with a history of HIV and a recent CD4 count of 85 presents with a headache and confusion for three days. While in the ED, he has a seizure which resolves spontaneously. Electrolytes are all within normal limits. CT scan demonstrates multiple subcortical ring-enhancing lesions. Which of the following medication regimens should be given? Is it A, amphotericin B, B, gencyclovir and fuscarnet, C, pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and leucovorin, or D, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxyl? So our patient has a CD4 count less than 100, a headache, confusion, seizures, and subcortical ring-enhancing lesions on CT. They're definitely describing toxoplasmosis here, which is treated with the answer choice C, pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and leucovorin. Don't confuse toxo with CNS lymphoma. CNS lymphoma also causes ring-enhancing lesions in patients with AIDS, but lesions in this case are usually solitary and located in the periventricular white matter. 
In addition, symptoms in these patients are usually gradually progressive over months rather than days as in our patient. Do you remember why we give leucovorin? Leucovorin, or folinic acid, is given as an adjunct to pyrimethamine to limit toxic effects. So that's great for first line, but what are the second line treatment options? For second line, think of clindamycin plus pyrimethamine and leucovorin or atovaquone plus pyrimethamine and leucovorin. Okay, let's go over the other answer choices too. Choice A, amphotericin B, that's the treatment for cryptococcal meningitis. In this condition, the CT is usually normal, and then LP would demonstrate leukocytosis and a positive cryptococcal antigen. Answer choice B, gancyclovir and foscarnet, that's the treatment for CMV retinitis or encephalitis. CMV encephalitis usually causes multifocal micronodules and ventricular encephalitis on MRI. And choice D, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, that's actually used for chronic suppression of toxoplasmosis to prevent relapse after initial treatment. Final question on this topic before the rapid review. Do you know what infection, aside from HIV, is associated with primary CNS lymphoma? Hmm, primary CNS lymphoma, that's also associated with Epstein-Barr virus. All right, let's close out this episode with a rapid review. Localized reaction from poison ivy can be treated with topical high-potency corticosteroids. Extensive reactions or reactions involving the face or genitalia need a two- to three-week course of tapering systemic steroids. Persistent hypotension or shock due to acute pulmonary embolism is the only widely accepted indication for systemic thrombolysis. Severe metabolic acidosis is a hallmark feature of cyanide poisoning and treatment is with hydroxycobalamin. Lightning strikes cause injuries via both thermal radiation and widespread electrical damage. Undercooked poultry is associated with infection from Campylobacter jejuni. This can present with bloody diarrhea, abdominal cramping, and vomiting. Treatment is with fluoroquinolones or azithromycin. Admission is rarely required. Subcortical ring-enhancing lesions on CT in an HIV patient with CD4 less than 100 is indicative of toxoplasmosis and treatment is with pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and leucovorin. CNS lymphoma also causes ring-enhancing lesions in patients with AIDS, but lesions in this case are usually solitary and located in the periventricular white matter. Symptoms are also gradually progressive over months rather than days. That wraps up Roshcast episode 49. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast, and you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.